0: i invite you to open with me to Exodus this evening. Exodus, um, we could start in 27, we'll start in Exodus 27. We're looking at tonight a, a subject that you maybe have never heard of before or maybe you've, you've studied it in depth. There's probably a, a, a vast uh, spectrum of, of people here on, on either side, but uh, the subject we're studying tonight is the tabernacle of Moses, the tabernacle of Of Moses. If you never heard of that tonight, great. We're glad that you're here. You're going to learn all about what that was. If you've studied this in depth tonight, great. This will be a nice refresher for you. Uh, As I was going over my notes this afternoon, I I realized something that uh, uh, was uh, a little bit troubling to me. I realized that I had prepared not a sermon, but a lecture tonight, And so uh, this is uh, more of a teaching tonight than a preaching, which is great for Sunday evening at 6 o'clock. That's what you want as a lecture, I know. But we'll move through this uh, tonight, and there are some points that I do want to make at the end from Hebrews chapter 10. but. It is really uh, definitely more informational tonight as we look at these different aspects of the tabernacle in the wilderness. Now, uh, of course, I want to remind you of uh, next Sunday night, we have a special guest who's going to be with us next Sunday night, Ron uh, Kinnear, a missionary to Africa. The God's used him in an incredible way. Uh, him and his wife have started several Bible schools and from those Bible schools they've planted 3,500 churches over the last 27 years and in those churches they've seen over 200,000 people come to Christ and so they're going to be here with us uh, ministering to us next Sunday night so I hope you'll be back next Sunday night for that as well. Uh, Now tonight I want to begin with two verses from the New Testament that speaks specifically to uh, what we're studying tonight from the Old Testament, and that's Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, and Colossians 2, 27. And uh, Ben, can you hit that projector for me? Uh, so Hebrews chapter 10 and Colossians chapter 2, and it says this, For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of the realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. And so here this verse is telling us that the law, what was given here to Moses, it was it was good, but it wasn't the full substance of what God wanted to do. Colossians chapter two actually says that, that these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so with a shadow, if you ever look at a shadow, what what you'll see is that you may be able to tell some things about the thing that casts the shadow. So if ever you're with your kids and you're playing at night like I like to do, and you're doing shadow puppets on the wall of a big monster coming to eat them with their uh, flashlight on your phone, am I the only one that does that? Maybe so, but anyway... You can tell the shape, the form, you can, you can kind of figure it out. Okay, that's a hand, that's the shadow of a hand. But it's not in full color, it's, it's not fully formed, it, it, it's distorted in a way. You can, you can kind of make out some of the features, but then some of it doesn't quite add up. And so here the writers of the New Testament, they say what was delivered to us in the Old Testament was a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ or to to put it another way, it would be the thing that the shadow is of is of Christ. And so as we look at the tabernacle in the wilderness where God's people would worship him, it's going to point us to Jesus. Jesus is the point. Jesus is the direction. Jesus is where all of this is headed. However, we can learn some things about our worship and our walk with the Lord as we study the tabernacle. So the purpose of the tabernacle was to restore fellowship with God. It was to restore fellowship with God. The, the fellowship that we, or rather the fellowship that was enjoyed in the Garden of Eden between Adam and Eve, they enjoyed unbroken fellowship and closeness with God. That had been destroyed, that had been severed when they sinned. And so God has called his people out of Egypt. He wants to take them into the promised land. He wants to have fellowship with them. His great desire is to be amongst his people, God dwelling with his people, but they're sinful. Just like we are sinful when God is holy. And so the big question is, how can a holy God have fellowship with sinful man? Because sin breaks fellowship with a holy God. God's desire is to be close. God's desire is to have fellowship. God's desire is to to be in and amongst his people. But his people are sinful. So how is this possible? So God gives a plan to Moses, a system to Moses of substitutionary sacrifice by which fellowship can be restored. And so a sacrifice would be offered in substitute of those who had sinned And that life of that animal would be given to pay the sin debt. The wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. Now, this system was always designed to be temporary. It was never designed to be permanent. And it was always pointing to and foreshadowing the one who would come and give a once-for-all sacrifice, the Lord Jesus But it was a temporary system established for God's people until that the fullness of time had come and Jesus had come and given that sacrifice. And so it's God's way of restoring some of the fellowship that was lost in the garden. What God is doing is he's creating a home for himself where his presence will dwell on the earth in the midst of his people. Now, the tabernacle was essentially a tent where God's presence dwelled on the earth. Again, the refrain that you see over and over again in Exodus is that I will be your God and you will be my people and I will dwell amongst my people. There's a lot of pictures, a lot of symbolism, a lot of imagery. We're going to look at six main components tonight. But as we do, I don't want you to lose sight of the bigger picture And that is that God's desire is to dwell among his people, and he is making a way for that to happen. God is blessing his people with the greatest gift that he can give himself, his presence. The tabernacle was a taste of the Garden of Eden, but it went from place to place with the children of Israel as they traveled throughout the wilderness. It could be torn down and it could be set up as they moved on their way into the promised land, and then as they ended up having to wander in the promised land for 40 years. And so I want to show you, uh, let's go to the next slide. It's a little bit zoomed in picture of this tabernacle. There's six uh, main pieces of furniture, if you will, that I want to look at tonight. There's the bronze altar, the bronze laver or water basin, a golden candlestick, the bread of the presence, the altar of incense, The Ark of the Covenant, these are the six main components uh, that were made up, were part of this system. And then, of course, one of the pieces of the tabernacle that wasn't the uh, part of the the furniture per se, but it was very much a, a very big part of it, was the veil, the veil that existed between the Holy of Holies, the furthest place back where the Ark of the Covenant dwelled, and the holy place that veil. And so the first is the bronze altar. We see this in Exodus 27. I'm going to be giving you summary, a path, summary teaching tonight. We really don't have time to go into all the verses. This one message of, of worship in the tabernacle could be split into a whole series of messages, but we're going to cover it tonight in one meeting. And so the bronze altar, the, the first piece, this was the one that was right at the front. If we could go back to the that previous image uh, very quickly. Uh, the, the front, the, you would enter into the, the not the tabernacle per se, but the outer court of the tabernacle. And the, the first thing that you would encounter, the first thing on the way in was that bronze altar. And so now let's look at it in detail. The, the bronze altar, the material was made of wood. It was a wooden box that was hollow, and it was overlaid with bronze. It was four and a half feet. High and seven and a half feet long and wide, and so it's it's very large. What it really was was a very nice barbecue pit. It had a grate on top of made of bronze, and this is where the sacrifices were made. The purpose was to uh, burn these offerings to the Lord, animal animals that would be slain. Their blood would be spilled, poured out which represented their life. The Bible says that our life is represented in our blood. And they would be laid upon this altar and burned up as a sacrifice for sin. And what this represents for us as God's people, this represents the atonement, that that for sin to be paid for, it must be atoned for. And so this represents the cross of Christ. And you're going to see the cross everywhere as we go through this, but... This is a a great picture of the cross as Jesus is the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world, uh, the book of Revelation tells us. And so the the bronze altar, it it represents our justification. It's the basis upon which we can have fellowship with God that a substitute has paid the price for our sin. Now, as you move beyond the bronze altar, the next thing that you would encounter would be the bronze laver, the the water basin. This was filled with water. We read about this in Exodus chapter 30. The bronze to make this uh, water basin was donated by the women that worked at the entrance of the uh, outer court. There were women who who worked in the service of uh, helping organize and and administering the the animals and the sacrifices that were taking place, and they donated their mirrors that were made of bronze. They didn't have glass the way we do, that, that you have the reflective surface behind it, that they used bronze, very well-refined and polished bronze to, uh, uh, to see themselves. So they all had a tan all the time because they... <laughs> you know, looked at, and also because they lived outside 24-7, but anyway, they donated their mirrors for this particular uh, piece. It tells us that in Exodus 38-8, which I think is a, just a beautiful picture. Uh, there's so much symbolism there of, of no longer uh, focusing our attention and our gaze on ourself But instead, we're giving those instruments of self-gaze and letting them be used in the worship of God so that our gaze and our attention and our focus can be placed upon Him. Now, the purpose was for the priests who ministered before the Lord, they were to wash their hands and their feet before they would go into the tent of meeting. After they had given a sacrifice, before they could enter the tent of meeting, they had to symbolically and literally cleanse their hands and their feet. Now for us, this signifies the washing that takes place in our lives after we're saved, right? So so we've been justified through the sacrifice of Christ, but we also still need to be washed. We still need to be cleansed. And what cleanses us is the Word of God. Though we are declared righteous, justified before God, called holy, God also calls us to walk in holiness before him, to live a life of holiness, and it is through his word that God cleanses his people. And so for this, this represents that ongoing life of sanctification. Jesus said in John 13, as he was washing his disciples' feet, and he came around to Peter, and Peter says, Well, give me a bath. Well, first Peter says, you're not going to touch me. There's no way you're washing my feet, Jesus. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And then Peter says, give me a bath. Wash my head, wash my hands, wash my feet, wash my whole body. And Jesus says, no, you've already cleansed because of the word that I have spoken to you. And nevertheless, he was showing him a model of of service and serving others, but he was also showing that as we go through life, even though we have been positionally declared righteous through justification, that there's still sin in our lives, that as we walk through this fallen, broken world, there's, there's times where we may pick up certain things that Just as the disciples had walked through dust and dirt and the debris that was on the ground, they needed their feet to be cleansed. So our lives need to be cleansed from the washing of the water of the word. Now, the bronze laver was the last object to be encountered before entering into the tent of meeting. And of course, this signifies that before entering into God's presence, one must be cleansed. The Levitical priests had to continually wash to ready themselves for the presence of a holy God. If they were to enter into God's holy presence, unclean, ceremonially unclean, they would have been struck dead in the presence of holy God. And so once then you move into the tent of meeting, you encounter some more items. The third is this golden lampstand, this lampstand that was made of pure gold. Read about this in Exodus 25. It was hammered all out of a solid, one solid piece of gold. The craftsmanship, the Bible actually says that God put his spirit specifically into the craftsmen so that they could could produce these incredible works uh, of craftsmanship of the temple. This This seven candlestick uh, menorah, if you will, was hammered out of one solid piece of gold. The central stem had six branches, three on either side, seven lamps in total, seven being the number of perfection. And it's modeled after the flowering of an uh, almond tree. And the purpose for this was twofold. First, it was to just illuminate the inside of this tent There's no electricity. The the tent is, is very dark inside. There's no way for light to come in from the outside. It's the only light source are these seven candles, these seven lamps that were burning. But it also signifies the illumination of the Holy Spirit. You see, without the light of the Holy Spirit, we are totally blind. Without the illuminating work of God's Spirit in our lives... We cannot see spiritual things or understand spiritual things or understand spiritual realities. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us revelation. The written Word of God is inspired by the Holy Spirit. All Scripture is God-breathed, breathed out by the Spirit of God. It's the Holy Spirit who illuminates the revelation that He's given us, and He illuminates it particularly with regards to Christ and who He is. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, none of us would believe in Jesus Christ. None of us would believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Savior of the world. If you believe that today, not just mentally, yes, I believe that, but if you actually know that in the depths of your soul, it's because the Holy Spirit has worked in your life. And through that internal working of the Holy Spirit... He bears witness that we are the children of God. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, entered into human history to pay the price for his people's sins, you have had your life illuminated, regenerated by the Holy Spirit. As the the priest would, would do his duties inside of the a tent of meeting. He would carry the lampstand around, lighting the way. And Jesus says in John 16, 13, that it's the Holy Spirit's job to guide us into all truth. The Holy Spirit is that illuminating factor in our lives. Of course, in Acts chapter 2, what happens? The Holy Spirit comes like a rushing mighty wind, and then what rests on each of the head's of the the 120 that are gathered there, a small flame, a small tongue of fire above their heads, pointing back to this work of the Holy Spirit, pointing back to the golden lampstand that illuminates our lives. Number four, we see what's called the bread of the presence. We read about this in Exodus 22 and also Exodus chapter 37. Uh, This wooden table was overlaid with pure gold, It was three feet long, uh, two and a quarter feet uh, high. It wasn't very tall. And it was one and a half feet wide. And on this uh, golden table were 12 loaves, one loaf for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it was specifically called the bread of the presence. It was to dwell in the presence of God. And these loaves were called holy, they were set apart, they were sanctified. They were baked fresh each Sabbath day and they were only to be eaten by Aaron the high priest and his sons and they had to be eaten in the presence of the Lord. Of course, it's not hard to to, to draw a a direct line from this to Jesus who said that he was the bread of life and that whoever comes after him will never hunger. Whoever believes in, in him will never thirst. But also we see a picture of the, the marriage supper of the Lamb where at the conclusion of human history, God's people celebrate by sharing a meal, where? In the presence of God. In the presence of God. And of course, this it's not hard to see the, the meal we share every Sunday as we take of the Lord's Supper together with bread representing the broken body of, of Jesus, only to be eaten by Aaron and his sons and only to be eaten in the presence of the Lord. Number five, we see the altar of incense. This was a wooden altar. This was, again, we're still in that, uh, the, the holy place, not the holy of holies. We're still in that, inside the tabernacle. This was the last piece of furniture in front of the veil, a wooden altar overlaid again with pure gold, three feet tall and then one and a half feet square. It stood there in this tent of meeting in front of the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Its purpose was Aaron and the priests were to burn incense on this altar twice a day, once at dawn and once at twilight. And we looked at this morning and the gifts that the three Magi brought, or the three gifts that the Magi brought uh, to the Lord Jesus, one of those gifts was frankincense. Frankincense was one of the uh, major components, one of the major ingredients in the uh, incense that would be made and would be burned here in the presence of the Lord. And this, what this signified burning this incense twice a day. Revelation 5.8, in John, as he sees his vision, his vision of the throne room, he sees these this angelic host, and they're holding golden bowls full of incense. And the angel tells John that these are the prayers of the saints, the prayers of the saints. And so this, this incense that was to be burned in the morning and in the evening represents our prayers that come up before the Lord that ascend into heaven like a sweet, fragrant incense into the throne room of heaven. The final piece of furniture as we go beyond the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place, only one piece of furniture in the Holy of Holies. It was this Ark of the Covenant. Now, I have to confess to you, I, my, my idea of the Ark of the Covenant is probably shaped more by Indiana Jones than anything else. It's just the truth. Um, but we read about this in Exodus 25 and also Exodus 37. Again, the only piece of furniture. It was a wooden chest. Overlaid with pure gold, three and three quarter feet long, two and a quarter feet wide, two and a quarter feet high. This chest was never to be touched by human hands. There were uh, eyelets on either side, two on either side, for poles to be inserted. These wooden poles were, of course, overlaid with pure gold. Whenever the tabernacle was torn down and to be moved, one of the first things that was to happen was the high priest was to go and he was to lay a very thick and heavy blanket over the Ark of the Covenant. That was the first thing before everything else was torn down. Nobody else would have ever even seen the Ark of the Covenant except for Moses and the high priest. On top of the ark was what was called the mercy seat. This was a solid golden slab that fit perfectly on top of the ark. And there were golden cherubim on this this mercy seat that were hammered out of the same piece of gold. They had wings that were outstretched over this mercy seat and faces that looked downward. All of this is described in intricate detail as Moses received this from the Lord, these plans from the Lord on the mountain, Mount Sinai, when he met with the Lord. It was from here that it says that the Lord spoke to Moses, that God spoke to Moses from between the cherubim. Sometimes in scripture it said that the Lord is enthroned upon the cherubim. And so this was the point, this was the place where God's Spirit would dwell on the earth. And he would dwell among his people, however, still separated by many, many layers of really protection. Protection for the people, not protection for God, but protection for the people who were still um, dead in their sins. Now the contents, there, was, there, was, there were things in the Ark of the Covenant. We know for certain that the two tablets of stone on which the Ten Commandments were written were in there. A copy of the law was in there. Later, there was a, a golden urn holding manna that was placed in there. And we read the story about Aaron's staff that budded. That was also placed in there. But the main thing that was always to be in there was the law, the Ten Commandments. These are the uh, main components of the tabernacle. And again, this in the Holy of Holies, which was a square, by the way, a perfect cube, this is where the presence of God dwelt. Of course, we read in Revelation 21 and 22 that the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven is a a, a new city but it's a perfect cube of course what it's symbolizing is uh, you know maybe you believe we're gonna live in a literal cube but more likely it's symbolizing the perfect um, union that we will have in God's presence as we dwell with him forever now there's a lot of imagery in even the tabernacle and the, the, the layout of the tabernacle itself. And so I want to show you, this to you. This is a top-down view of the tabernacle. And as you draw a line uh, around these pieces of furniture, what it actually draws for us is a cross. As you, as you uh, put, a, a, you, you hear here, you see here the bronze um, altar and the bronze laver and then there's where the table of uh, the bread was to be and the candlestick and the altar of incense and then the um, Ark of the Covenant. And if you draw lines around that, what you come up with is with a cross and I think the next slide fills that in for us just in case uh, you didn't see it, you know, there it is. What's also interesting is the way that the Israelites were to camp around the tabernacle. And so let's go uh, to this next slide here. You see how the populations were split up. God had designed for the 12 tribes to be split, three on each side of the tabernacle. But he had it split in such a way that the two with the the closest population, or, or the the the, the three with the closest population to one another were on the north and the south side. And then the population with 108 was on this side, and the, the largest population was here at the bottom. And so if you go to the next slide, you'll see that all, that also shows, uh, even around as they gathered around the tabernacle in, in the shape of a cross, uh, there's an artist rendition the next slide of, of what that might have looked like in the wilderness. who, Who would have seen that? You know, not Google with their satellites. Maybe if they got high enough up on a mountain, Moses would see that. But that was for the enjoyment of the Lord. Now, There were many different sacrifices that the Lord uh, instituted and provided for, but the the most important is the Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement. And this was to be celebrated during Passover. And so I want to go back to this close-up of this Tent of Meeting. We'll look at the Day of Atonement. This was also known as Yom Kippur. Of course, is still celebrated in part by uh, those who uh, follow rabbinic Judaism today. It was the most solemn and holy day of all of the Israelite feasts and festivals. And it was on this day, this one day per year, that the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies. There was only one time, one day, for every year that one person could enter into the presence of Almighty God. The penalty for entering at the wrong time or in the wrong way was death. And before even entering into the the tabernacle, and then into the Holy of Holies. The high priest Aaron at that time, he was to bathe himself totally, put on special garments for this day. He was to sacrifice a bull first for his own sin and then again for the sin of his family. He was to take that blood in and sprinkled the blood of the bull on the Ark of the Covenant. And then once he did that, he was to bring two goats, which represented the sin of the people. One of the goats was to be sacrificed, and this is from, uh, and I quote, because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been, So this was to be sacrificed for sin and and this blood was to be taken and sprinkled and poured upon that mercy seat, the the place where God's Spirit dwelled, where the, the two cherubim were enthroned there, to sprinkle the blood there over the Ark of the Covenant. The second goat was to be used as a scapegoat in which Aaron would place his hands upon the head of the goat symbolizing the transfer of the sins of the nation onto this goat. He would confess, as he had his hands on this goat, he would confess over it the rebellion and wickedness of the Israelites, and then he would send the goat out with an appointed person who would release it into the wilderness. And what this signifies is, as the goat carried out of the camp the sins of the people, they were to be forgiven for another year. Of course, this points towards, and it's very obvious, it points towards the sacrifice of Christ, the cleansing of our sin. But that scapegoat reminds us that our sin is also forgotten. It's forgotten in the sea of God's forgetfulness. When, when we come to Christ, God says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sin from us. Now I want want to draw your attention to, again, what would happen one day a year. This priest would enter into the Holy of Holies where God's presence dwelled, enthroned on the cherubim. Inside the Ark of the Covenant is the law of God. God. And 364 days out of the year, God's presence dwelled in the midst of his people who were sinful, and as God would look down, what he would see is the law. He would see the law of the covenant. He would see the imperfections of his people. He would see the sinfulness of his people as they did not live up to his law. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But then on that day of atonement, that one day a year, the high priest would go in with the blood and the place that he would apply the blood would be that mercy seat. And on that day when God looked down, he didn't see the law, but he saw the blood applied. He saw the atoning sacrifice. And when God looks down upon us, He doesn't see a bunch of wretched sinners. He sees the blood applied. He sees us through the lens of the work of His Son, Jesus, that substitute who died in our place for our sin. So that when God sees us, He calls us saints, holy ones. And so we do not need to walk through life beaten down, condemned, fearful of God because of uh, that we think God is angry or God is mad at us God is never angry at us we are his people his wrath poured out on his son and that Jesus drank the full cup of the wrath of God so that we could enjoy the benefits of fellowship 24/7 not not for one hour on one day a year one person gets to experience the presence of God. No, all of God's people for all eternity access to His presence. Now notice here that on the mercy seat, if we can flip back to the the close-up of the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat on either side was an angel. On either side was a cherubim. And on the Day of Atonement, that between that mercy seat would be covered in blood. Now I want to draw your attention to John chapter 20. Let's, let's flip over there quickly. John chapter 20. This is when, this is after the women have gone to the tomb. They come back and they get Peter and John and Peter and John run to the tomb. Peter and John go back to their homes. But Mary, in verse 11, John chapter twenty eleven, Mary Magdalene, she stays there and she's weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. In verse 12, it says, And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Now, if Jesus had been taken off the cross, quickly wrapped in a a shroud, quickly wrapped uh, and, and it was, he was buried quickly because of the uh, Sabbath that was coming and they couldn't work on the Sabbath and so he, he quickly was buried. Of course, the women are coming to, to dress his body properly, but his body was not dressed properly. Jesus had been beaten beyond recognition. He, he, he hung on the cross for hours. The, the final uh, wound that he was inflicted with not only the, the crown of thorns on his uh, head, the scourging of his back, the, the nails through his hands and his feet, but the final uh, death blow was the spear in his side from which blood and, watered, blood and water flowed. He was taken down quickly from the cross and wrapped in this burial wrapping. But over the course of the next few days, Without his wounds being treated or dressed, Jesus' body would have continued to bleed and bleed and bleed. And so when Mary stoops in to look at where Jesus had laid, what she would have seen would have been the exact same thing that would have taken place on every day of atonement. An angel on one side and blood in the middle. This day of Yom Kippur, the the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, all of this is pointing towards the cross, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. The angels at the head and the feet, the blood of Jesus there between them, God looking down and not seeing the law, but seeing the blood that had been applied. All of the symbolism, all of the instruments, everything that they did pointed towards and foreshadowed the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I want to close tonight by reading from Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 summarizes all of this work the the sacrifices the work of the high priest and he does the writer of Hebrews does a masterful job of bringing all of these things together of course the the author of Hebrews the ultimate author author is the Holy Spirit and so as I read this I'm going to read the, the whole chapter tonight just to to tie all of these things together, I pray that the Holy Spirit would would stir in you all of this imagery as we see how it is all fulfilled in Christ. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year Made perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would not they have ceased from offering their sacrifices, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said... "'Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. "'In burnt offerings and in sin offerings you have, not, you have taken no pleasure. "'Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written in the scroll of the book. "'When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings,' These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. For every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered once and for all, for all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins And their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. We have such a great high priest. Jesus didn't have to first offer a bull for his sin before he could enter into the holy place. He kept God's law perfectly perfectly without sin, the spotless Lamb of God. And He goes into that holy place, the Holy of Holies, where even right now he, he sits at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf. And He and the Father have poured out their Spirit upon the church. And so we have access to the presence of God 24-7. When Jesus died on the cross, that veil was torn in two not from the bottom to the top, representing our ascension to Christ, but from the bottom, but rather from the top to the bottom, that veil was torn. Because God tore the veil. God destroyed the barrier. And He destroyed it in His own body that He offered as a sacrifice for sin once for all. And so what this means is that Salvation, the cleansing that we receive from Christ, it's all of grace. It's all of his work. It's unmerited favor. We don't have to work and earn and strive to earn God's favor, to earn God's love. No, we experience it on behalf of the one who accomplished the work for us. Jesus on the cross as he is dying declares not in Uh, not, Not losing, but declaring in victory. Not declaring in defeat, but a shout of victory. It is finished. The work has been accomplished. And now we are ushered in to the presence of God. And we can live there and rest and enter into that Sabbath rest and live in a perpetual state of rest, not having to work for our salvation, but resting in the finished work of the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. We have a, a, a better high priest than under Levitical priesthood. In fact, our priesthood, the priesthood of Christ, isn't even a descendant of Levi. He's a descendant of the tribe of Judah. And the writer of Hebrews goes into Great detail on that, talking about the order of Melchizedek, which we are not going into. Don't worry, we're not, we're not even going to start down that rabbit trail tonight. In all of this, what God is doing is he's restoring the fellowship that was broken because of sin. That we can know God, that we can have fellowship with God, that we can be friends with God. Jesus truly is Emmanuel, God with us. In John chapter 1, 14, where it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word dwelt that is used there is literally the word tabernacle, that Jesus came and tabernacled among us. Jesus came and and set up the tent among us so that we could see the glory of God, so that the glory of God is not reserved for for a special class of people, the presence of God not reserved for one tribe and and one family and one man from that tribe and one day a year and, and one moment of that day per year. No, we have seen His glory. because he tabernacled among us. When Moses would go in and he would meet with God and speak to him, it says when he came out of the Holy of Holies that his face glowed from the glory of God, from beholding the glory of God. And it freaked everybody out because his face was glowing. And so they made Moses wear a veil. So he had to go around like we all had to do in 2020. How much did you enjoy that? Not too much. He had to go around with a veil everywhere he went because it it freaked people out. They were freaked out by the glow. But it says when he would go into the Holy of Holies, he would take off the veil. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 and I'm closing with this tonight. Paul likens that to us who are now ushered in to the holy of holies, ushered in to the presence of God because of the work of Christ. And just like Moses would he would go in, he would remove the veil. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that we all With unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory into another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. When we worship the Lord, and and there's a whole symbolism even in our worship services of of entering into His gates with thanksgiving and into His courts with praise and and making a sacrifice of praise is is the first thing that we do. And as we move beyond that and and into the the presence of God and into the Holy of Holies, we, we behold the glory of God even in our corporate worship times. And in doing so, we are being transformed. The Spirit of God working in our lives producing the glory of God in us. And so I want to encourage you as we worship God to to press into the glories of Christ, to press into the glory of God, the the glorious things that He has done for us. As we sing the songs and as we uh, 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 hear the words and and are stirred in our hearts and our affections through our corporate times of worship, let it not just be words in our lips, but let them go down into our hearts. And that we can, like Moses, with unveiled face, with no barrier between us and the presence of God, view the glory of God and to be transformed into His likeness with access to His presence because our fellowship with him has been renewed. Amen? I'm gonna invite you uh, to stand this evening. I'll invite the worship team to come. Today, today, we have enjoyed the presence of God. We really have. Worship this evening was powerful. Worship this morning was powerful. The presence of God with His people. But I believe that, that there's even greater times in the Lord's presence to be desired and to be pursued in worship. And what is a great factor in that is us, is us. The Bible says that God draws near to those who draw near to Him. And there is a difference in a congregation when the congregation, when the whole church presses in to worship, goes after God to encounter Him. There's a difference between when a whole congregation does that and then there's a whole group of people here at worship, and nobody's doing that. There's a difference. And so it's this incredible dynamic of my worship of God is not just this private thing, but when I come together with the people of God, it's a shared thing. And so that the person on the other end of the church building benefits from my pursuing God in worship, as it's now a corporate time of seeking the Lord together. And so I, I really want to encourage us who are here on Sunday nights, I don't know if you notice, it's, it's a smaller group than comes on Sunday mornings, I don't know if you've noticed that. And so the whole church is not hearing these messages on worship but we are and if we will come to worship god and truly come to worship him to press into him to sing his praises with with hearts full of thanksgiving with 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 lips of praise and and giving god our best in worship it, it will spread a fire through this congregation that the presence of God, it will be a tangible experience of the presence of God like we've never experienced before. And the amazing thing is that when that begins to happen, guess what? It also goes out into the streets. That starts following us around everywhere we go. And so we, we desire these, these moves of God and these moves of the Spirit And we can see God's Spirit move. And don't we need it? Doesn't our world need a move of God's Spirit? It will come to the people who are hungry, hungry for God, hungry for righteousness, hungering for the things of God, hungering for the Spirit of God, hungering to be in the presence of God with a revelation. And I I just pray that. The Holy Spirit, as we go through this series and even tonight, that he continues to reveal some truths to us about about worship. So as we close tonight, let let us make a new commitment. Let us make a new dedication to the Lord that when we come to corporate times of worship, we're not coming to be entertained. We're not coming to have our ears tickled. We're coming to, to worship our King. We're coming to minister before the Lord as, as a royal priesthood is what we're called. We're called a p- priests in God's house. That The worship that we offer to Him is ministry unto Him and it even ministers to the person on the other side of the church. And so let's, let's endeavor to pursue God in even greater demonstrations of vocalizing our worship unto Him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for meeting with us here today. Lord, we see how much work had to go into being ushered into your presence in the Old Testament. And Lord, we have had to do nothing but receive the finished work of your Son, Jesus a better sacrifice, a better high priest, better results, access to your presence, your spirit in our lives. Lord, help us to to press in to your presence in our times of worship, expecting to meet with you, expecting to experience you, and your goodness and your love and your joy and your peace and all of the good gifts and blessings that you bring us. Lord, thank you for Destiny Church. Lord, we thank you for the ways that you have blessed us. Lord, we look forward to even greater times in your presence as we continue to meet together, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, knowing that when we meet together in your name that you're right here with us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.